this evening our text is at the end of chapter 3 in Malachi, but we will be looming a little bit beyond that. And any time you come to the book of Malachi, there is one other book in the Old Testament that you immediately need to also think of, and that's the book of Nehemiah. And so as we look at this, there are a group of exiles. To be in exile means you have been dispossessed of your homeland, of your city, or your territory, and you've been forced to go and live in another country. God's people had been forced to go and live in Persia, Babylon. And yet, in time, God let those people known as the exiles return again to Jerusalem and to the land, lands of Palestine. And so there is this relationship then between Nehemiah and Malachi. Nehemiah is concerned with, of course, the defense of the exiles as they return, rebuilding the walls of the city, getting the people back there again, putting things in order. Ezra is concerned with rebuilding the temple, that worship would be reconstituted again. But these things don't happen easily. It is an effort to rebuild a society, to rebuild the church in Jerusalem, the people of God. It takes much effort, and there are many struggles, many declines, many backslidings. Malachi speaks into that situation. He speaks to these returned believers who have come back, and he finds them to be a mixed multitude of peoples. And that's the context, then, that you come to the third chapter. In your Bibles, we often pull out, when we want to talk about money in the church or raising money, Malachi 3. That's the chapter that's called the go-to chapter for fundraisers. Raise the money. Preach a good sermon on tithing. Get everyone guilty and make sure they're giving more. It's always a fascinating thing. The context of how it is first delivered is it totally ignored, and we have turned it into something else called fundraising, when it actually had a great deal to do with the state of the soul of God's people. And so this evening, I would remind you as we come to the text that that is where we're going. So this evening, our theme is this. I want to talk about God's people and the varieties that we find within God's people, spiritually speaking. And as we look at God's people, we will find about and learn about the God who is the God of God's people, the God that we serve as God's people. So this evening then, as we look at this theme, it's God's people and who is their God. And I'd like to look at three things with you this evening. I'd like to discuss with you then and see from the text the nature of the diversity of the spiritual condition of the church, God's people. Secondly, we want to talk about who is God 
And we see that God is a God who remembers and has a book of memories and remembrance. Who else is this God of God's people? He is a God who makes promises to his people. And he is a God who keeps his promises. So three things this evening with you. The nature of God's people and their spiritual condition. God's book of memories and remembrances. And God's promises to his people. When we look at the church today, we think the church is varied. We often start by saying it's varied by race. That's the way our thinking is at the moment. We're sort of charged with that perspective. But in chapter 3 of Malachi, that's not where it begins. It begins with the spiritual state of the church. Not the color of the church, but the spiritual condition of the church. And Malachi brings out three types of spiritual conditions that he sees in that Old Testament church in Jerusalem, in Palestine, Judah, Israel. And he likens it around conversations. There are those who are having some very bad conversations, and they are spiritual people, God's people. And there are other people who are God's people, but they're having better kinds of conversations. And we'll get to that momentarily. And so, as we come to this, here is the first group of people we find. The church is made up of hypocrites. Have you heard anyone say that? Well, I stopped going to church when I was 19 because I lived in the community and I saw a bunch of hypocrites. Heard it? Been there? The church is made up of hypocrites. People who go through the motions but really grumble about it. It's a type of hypocrisy. Now, there are various kinds of hypocrites. There are those who just are sort of going through the motions, and then there are those who are hypocrites who actually say one thing, and they do the complete opposite. Well, Malachi found them all in Jerusalem, the great city of God, amongst the exiles. In chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, there are people there that they are not very sincere in their tithing. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man, God, rob God? But you are robbing God. How have we robbed you? Now, you see, here's the first group of Christians, or believers, shall we say, in the Old Testament here. This group of believers are these. They are believers who are living in rebellion against the law of God. They are within the framework of the believing community, but they are questioning the law of God. Did God really mean for me to do this? 
did God really want me to do that? And so there, there were a, a group of people who were caught up in sort of rebellion and disobedience in the church. You will find, even as Pastor Compton said this morning, you will find sometimes Christians who are outright disobedient to large sections of the Word of God. They will either deny it certain fundamental teachings or they will deny certain moral, ethical responsibilities that are to be Christian. And here in Malachi, there is a group of exiles that call themselves believers. Just one problem. They don't want to do what God tells them to do. You would sort of say they're living as rebels of God. They're sort of hypocritical when they say one thing with their mouth, but they don't want to do anything about it. They are very rebellious types of people. But if you shoved them into a corner, they would say to you, well, I'm no Canaanite. I am a believer. You know, it's been amazing through the years. You have this experience constantly. You know you're with people on airplanes, trains, wherever, and they always find out you're a minister, and immediately you get to know which denomination they belong to. You, then you ask them the next question, when was the last time you were in church? Oh, um, well, I got married about 20 years ago, but I still identify as I'm a Baptist, I'm a Pentecostal, I'm a Presbyterian, oh, I'm Roman Catholic. You sort of say to them, well, you've got it all in name, but you're absolutely nothing. And there's a sense of, what is it? How sincere is it? And some people go so far, they just live in rebellion. Well, that's one group that, that, Paul, that uh, Nehemiah and Malachi are dealing with. And you can read it about it in Malachi 13. Now, the other group are a little different. They bring 10% to church every Sunday. No, not net, gross. But as they bring it, they sort of bring it with a scowl on their face and say, I hate bringing this 10% to church on Sunday. I really don't know why we do it. But they do it every Sunday. And you look at chapter 3 and verse 13, and you see these kinds of believers. Your words have been very hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And they say, we don't get anything out of giving 10%. We should get a kickback of some kind. We should have an increase in our fields and our produce. Our children should be prospering more. In fact, some of them are reverting into slavery of some type. And as you read this conversation in verse 13 and 14, these believers are grumbling against the law of God, but they're doing the law of God. 
and they're sitting at home with their children and they're saying, now you know we, we give 10% every Sunday. Well, in those days, Saturday. Or whatever. But we're really against doing it. And so they sort of say to their child, well, we do it, but we don't like doing it. They say you should go to church on Sunday. We go to church on Sunday, but we really don't want to go to church on Sunday. We could be working on Sunday and making money. We could be gaining prosperity. So do you see the tension? And Nehemiah spots it. And he says, you're hypocrites. You call yourselves believers, but your heart is not in it. You are spiritually sick inside, but outwardly you are Pharisees. Now, do you see where this is going? The visible community of God has all kinds of people in it. There are those who are spiritually alert and sensitive. There are those who profess a form of Christianity. There are those who are reluctant about being Christian. They go about the formalism, the joylessness of it, the Pharisees of, them, of it. But the joy of the Lord is not in their soul. And Malachi says, I see who you are. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ? He gave a parable. There was a field, and in that field, there was beautiful green wheat growing. But amongst the shoots of green wheat growing, there were other green shoots growing. Those were weeds. And someone said, well, let's start to separate them. Go around and pull them out. Ah, but there's a problem. Here's the problem. Sometimes you cannot tell the green shoot that is a weed from the green shoot that is the wheat. And if you try to take upon yourself the role of God, you can overextend yourself. Give it time. And on earth, you may not be able to sort it all out. But in time, God will sort it out. What you see in that parable is this, is a truth that spans both covenant Old Testament and New Testament. The visible church on earth, the visible community and people of God in the Old Testament covenant period, as in the New Testament, is a mixed body. There are different spiritual states. And at times when a preacher is preaching, he will preach discriminatingly in which he will speak to the conscience of everyone who is a hearer listening. And as he speaks discriminatingly, he will arrest those who are caught in rebellion and sin and disobedience. 
yet living the visible life of the Christian. He will speak with discrimination to those whose heart is living in obedience, but whose heart is far from obedience, and they have no real spiritual acquaintance with the God of grace, mercy, and truth. But they have fallen somehow into an external religion. They've been baptized. They've got their name on the church roll. But at home in their own spiritual life, they do not want to sacrifice at all for anything of the kingdom of God because that is not their God. You see, Malachi is a preacher. His nickname is the messenger. And as the messenger of God, he is discriminating. He is not discriminating on race or class. He is discriminating the souls of men and women. And there will be men and women who show some form of Christian life but are actually living in hypocrisy or rebellion. There will be some men and women and young people who will be showing signs of spiritual life, but in essence, they are spiritually dead and not yet in Christ spiritually. That's what Malachi the preacher is doing. And then after that section on money, that's his comment on money. Now, he believes in tithing. That's, that's another issue. But he is doing it in discrimination against two groups of people, one who are the re rebels against tithing, two, the other ones who are doing it, but they don't want to do it. And then he comes to the third group. Chapter 3, verse 16. And who is the third group? You see them. They are different. Then, for those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord had paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now here's another group that Malachi discriminates and recognizes, and God recognizes, and God reveals to Malachi. their heart is in the things of God. They please God with the simplicity of faith, sincerity of life, and a love of fellowship to God and to his people. And you see, there are three characteristics that Malachi identifies about these people. These are the Lord's people, another group. The first thing is they have conversations with each other. And these conversations with each other, it doesn't tell us what they're about, but I don't think it's just about the weather. It's probably about the word, God's will, the providential dealings of God with mankind and humanity, matters that are of the spiritual life of your destiny and of eternity. 
They are conversing with each other. They're talking with each other. Now, what do you call that, friends? You call that the communion of the saints, the fellowship of his people. And there is something different with these people than the other two groups that were just mentioned above that in chapter 3. They were not communing with each other. They were not conversing one with each other other than grumbling. This group accept the providences of God. They work through it. They pray over it. They plead with God over it. There is a, a difference. There is a fellowship in the Lord. Now here's a question for you. If you're a child of God, your heart goes out in love to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and your heart should and must pull itself out to seek the fellowship and the conversation of like-minded people of faith in the Lord. And if it is not, then there is a spiritual call to you to wake up and to examine your life and say, am I spiritually going in the right way? And it goes on, the characteristics. You can see them. You can pull them out. They, they have fellowship. They have the fear of the Lord upon them. And that is a code. You find it all through the scriptures. And what is it code for? You can debunk it. You know what it means. The fear of the Lord is reverence, devotion, love, submission, faith. These people are devoted to God because they are submitted in submission to his word and will. There's a sense of love to the Lord. There is faith. They say sincerely, it's not just truth we believe. We rest in the Lord, for we believe in Him. There is fellowship. There is personal faith. There is reverence, delight. And they are resting in the Lord. And the third one is a little more difficult because it is constructed oddly in the ESV. It's right at the end of verse 16. It says, they feared the Lord, they esteemed his name, and they spoke with one another. Pull those three words out and you've got it. These believers are in conversation and fellowship with each other. These believers fear the Lord, love him, devoted to him, submissive to him, and are in faith, resting in the promises of God. And they esteem his name. If you've got a New King James Bible, you may have seen there. They're meditating. They're thinking. They're meditating about his name and his ways. That is, they have a sense of honor about the things of God. There is a sense of, this is sacred. There is something wonderful about the very name of God. You, you hear it in the reverence of Jews. We can say the name. is a wonder to them. Because to say the name is to speak of his being and of his glory and of his greatness. 
And they are thinking, they're meditating, I think, that is the right way of seeing it. And so this description of these believers is totally different than the other ones with hypocrisy and formalism and nominalism. These ones are in fellowship with each other. They know what it is to fear God. And they are thoughtful. And they are pious towards the Lord. Now, all of these are in the visible church. And you can take it up in Westminster Confession 25, and you'll see it in paragraphs 1 and 2. And it has not changed today. What kind of a believer are you? Where do you sit in this chapter? The formalistic believer, the nominal one in living in rebellion against the word of God, the one who desires in sincerity of heart, I believe, I seek fellowship, and I crave to grow in grace. You will see verse 16 is not about the perfect man. You're going to find that momentarily in another man in these same chapters. But it is not in that man. For a true believer knows about grace and the God of grace and comes to love that the God of grace. So there's God's people. Very quickly, then there's God's book here. It's very important in verse 16. What are books? Books are for people who can't keep it all in their head, right? You've got a poor memory. I've got to jot that down. I've got to write it down. I've got to make a register. All through the Old and New Testament, you have this idea of books and remembering things. Esther, go back there and read it. You can read it about King David. We sing it in the Psalms. You come to the book of Revelation and you hear it about this. The, this idea of a book of remembrance is very simple, this. It's a metaphor that God sees all people. God sees your life and every deed of your life, and there is nothing that he does not see, including the heart and the soul of your being. And God records it. Now, you may recall in history, I, I hope some of you enjoy history. You remember the Doomsday Book, 1086 A.D. The greatest register in Western civilization was built around the need of King William the Conqueror, the Norman King. He wanted to know what land he had, how much taxes he could have. And so in 1086, he created the great register, the great book of remembrance. And that book was a guiding book for law. That's why it's called the Doomsday Book. Because it was a register of law. All cases and legal disputes concerning land 
went back to that book and they were registered according to it. If you had a dispute with your neighbor 300 years later, what did it say in the doomsday book? And if they hide and the percentage of land was not according to the doomsday book, then you were out, thrown out of court. That was the greatest register until 1873. Books of registers are to remember things and events, deeds and names. God remembers. God takes note. Why does it come here? It comes here like this, because God takes note of all his people. God takes pe note of all the peoples of the earth, the righteous and the unrighteous, his people and those who are not his people. And amongst his people, God discriminates too. God is a discriminating God. That's what the text is telling us. For not all of Israel are of Israel. And so God discriminates. Timothy Guest, I think it was a Baptist preacher, no relation to the Guest factory people, he said this, God takes note. Though our efforts may seem so comparatively small to all that is occurring in the world around us, God takes notice. Those who fear God and serve him in this generation may be ignored, scorned and ridiculed by the world, but they are not ignored by God. God takes note. God takes note. And he paid attention. He heard them. He saw them. And he wrote it in the book. Now you can get caught up in literalism and try to define all that you want and say, well, what kind of a book does it have in heaven? Is it parchment? Is it paper? Is it vellum? What and all that? That's absolutely immaterial to it. It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech that is reminding you this is the God who God's people worship and serve and honor. He is the God who doesn't miss anything, who sees everything, who knows everything, who sees every deed that's done in secret, every sacrifice that's made that is never honored by anyone. Many times, we've been traveling and speaking in little abandoned, quiet villages off the dusty roads, whether it be in Africa or I've seen it in South, South America. And I recall just a few years ago being in one village, and it was a wonderful service we were having, and it was a great time of fellowship. And I remember asking the question, when and where and what time did the missionary first come to your village and bring you the gospel? Some of them had no idea. But one of them, and I was delighted, it was a student of Dumasani, so I thought, good, this is good, good advertisement. He said, I'll show you the grave. He took Nancy and I on a wild goose chase down through a field towards a river and there was a bush right there. Where? There. Can't you see it? 
So off we go into the bush. Yes, snakes and all. And there we found a row of tombstones in the bush. Yes, forgotten. Forgotten, but not forgotten. Whatever is done for the Lord, he remembers. He knows. Whatever you do for the Lord will never save you. But it is an act of, act of doxological praise to God, of testimony as a witness of His grace, mercy, and unto you. It is not forgotten. I recall years ago being in Suriname and going into the bush, into the Amazon. And there we came across this one section of bush, and there were rows of these little white stones, about six inch, six inches, stepping out of the, the earth and surrounded by trees. And they were all written in German. We tried reading them and read a few of them. One month, two months. We started to conclude the life expectancy of many of these. There were rows of them forgotten by man, but not forgotten by God, whoever gives a cup of water in the name of Christ will not be forgotten. God remembers, not because it saves you, but because you are saved. You want his kingdom to be blessed. You want to do his bidding. You want to serve him. You want to glorify him. God takes notice. God takes notice. God takes notice. Yes, what is done on earth is recorded in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.10 Believers will receive their reward. God sees, God approves of faithful service. God's children are marching towards the celestial city. And if you haven't read John Bunyan recently, Pilgrim's Progress, make sure you do. Read the children's version. You can speak afterwards about that. Or speak to Peter, he'll tell you about it. The celestial city, that's where we're going. But in that celestial city, there are rewards. There are blessings. Is your name recorded in that city? Luke 10, 20. And in the words of Paul, Galatians 6, 9, in due season we will be if we do not give up. God's book is there. The last few chapters of the book of Scripture in Revelation, remember these great words from Revelation 20, verse 11 and 12, and I'll read it, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, great and small, kings, princes, paupers, slaves, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book, according to what they had done. Is your name recorded in that book? And now, do you understand 
that in due season we will reap. For our final destiny is the celestial city to which we are going. Is your name in God's book? It is far more significant that it be in God's book than it be in all the registers of men and women on earth that they have created. You can belong to ten societies and civil groups But if your name is not recorded in the book of life, so what on that day? God's people, their God, He knows, He records, He takes notes. And he is the God of promise. In Malachi chapter 3 and 4, it is a bundle of promises. You can take the promises and you can tie a string around them. There are four. And you can take that group of promises and you can hold on to them. Here are the four promises that God's people know about and that God keeps. Malachi said, God is going to send a forerunner in the spirit of Elijah. And he is going to come before the great day of the Lord, the Messiah. There in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's promise number one. Did God keep his promise? Yes, he did. You could read all about it in the New Testament. You can begin with the very birth of John the Baptist which is a reminder to us that Elijah has come, not the second, not a physical Elijah as in the first, but a second type of Elijah, preparing the way of the Lord. You can read it through the testimonies of Jesus who confirms that he is that spirit of Elijah. That's a promise of God. He fulfilled it. He kept it. A promise is a word of assurance to you to build up your faith. This book is true. It was written 400 years before the coming of Jesus, before the birth of John the Baptist. It is a word of assurance to you. God keeps his promise. The second promise here is the Messiah, of course, the Redeemer will come. Verse 5 again. He is coming, and you can find it all through chapter 3 and 4 in different ways. That's its sermon in itself. But that is a promise of God. He is coming. And when he comes, he will come at two different intervals. He will come in the first coming to the earth for his people. He will come again in judgment and justice. And that is a third promise. God will deliver justice in this world. And he will bring about complete and total justice. True equity. Justice is equity, fairness, knowing all the facts in their completeness. Men and women, we crave it. All people crave it. The problem is, can we ever get full justice on earth? We're living in a period in history in which the word justice is being said 
at an alarming rate in our culture. What type of justice is it? What kind of justice is it? Where is that justice defined and rooted? Justice must be rooted in the Word of God and in the being of God and in the very personhood of the character of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. God sees motive. God sees completeness. God sees the fullness of something. Here is a promise to say that God's people will be fully vindicated on that day that all justice will be complete and total and in absolute perfection. We need to remind ourselves of that as Christians today, as believers. You will be far from satisfied from earthly justice. We are to pursue it, yes. We are to seek it, yes. But unless it is rooted in a greater form of justice that is very rooted very much in the very heart of the character of the holiness and righteousness and truthfulness of God, we will be seeking standards that are almost impossible for us to judge by. Here is a justice that God promises to deliver. And that justice is going to be a separation. If today you're sitting in church and you're saying, I don't like what this Bible is saying about separation. I don't like what it says there in verse number 18 of chapter 13, of chapter 3 of Malachi. Then I simply remind you, these are the intentions that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave. If you speak about the goats and the sheep, and we laugh about it sometimes. We sort of turn our eschatology into a joke of some kind. But that goats and the sheep is a matter of discrimination that is left to God himself through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. And Malachi chapter 3, verse 18, is saying the exact same thing 400 years before Jesus Christ said it. And so if you don't like Malachi, I've got news for you. You are going to find it hard to listen to Jesus because he says the same thing. But before I leave, let me tell you one more thing about this Jesus. This Jesus is the right. And this Jesus went to the cross for unrighteous people to bear a righteous sacrifice that you could be declared on that day.
which you did because you loved me, but declared righteous by the righteousness of the sacrifice of the cross. So you do not need to fear that day of discrimination. You can actually receive it. And realize that God has given you a wonderful because he's going to take you up that day into his glorious arms as his treasured jewels and possessions that have been declared righteous by the blood of Christ. It's very interesting. Remember the old little children's hymn? When he cometh, when he cometh, to make up his jewels, all his jewels, precious jewels, his loved and his own. It goes on. He will gather, he will gather the gems for his kingdom. All the pure ones, all the bright ones, his loved and his own. Well, Cushing was reading his Bible and he looked at Malachi 3, verse 17. And there it was. God's people are declared right by the righteousness of Christ. God's people are declared right by the righteousness of Christ. Yet on earth, God's people do not always see that. Sometimes God's people live under nominalism, live under rebellion, and try to fool God. But this chapter says, there's nowhere safe to hide. In your nominalism, in your rebellion, the righteous son and stand under his blood and on that day you'll be saved. You'll find yourself a precious jewel under his mercy. There's nowhere else to turn. There's only one place to turn under his mercy, under his righteous law, and you will find yourself a Jew. And you will be able to say, gather, gather unto him. Amen. Let us pray.